You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this week's version of Healthcare Insight. You're uh, on America's Web Radio, and I'm Ron Bachman. We've been talking for several weeks now about something that I call unlocking the secrets, unlocking the secrets of health insurance affordability. We want to continue that process today because we're going to get into the most important aspects of any health insurance reform, a test, a check, if you will, as to whether or not this is a viable uh, concept or it's not. Now, I've challenged some of you in the past linking through to these um, uh, presentations is to imagine. Imagine what you would do if you had control. Imagine what you would do if you had the ability to determine where we're going nationally on health care reform. Well, the first stop in making this test is can you imagine the idea that we would have real access to care? How do we get access to care? Well, to establish access to health care, we have to first create a better access to affordable health insurance. It's hard to get access to real quality care, to all the specialists that you want, to all the hospitals you want to go to, to all the programs that you want to access without health insurance. And that health insurance has to be affordable. So that's the key to accessing good health care is to have good, affordable health insurance. Now, the concept that we've been talking about is called personalized health insurance. And the reason we call it personalized health insurance is because you're unique. You need to have something personalized to your interests. You only need to buy the things that you need to buy, not what somebody tells you you need to buy. So let's test personalized health insurance against the most critical metrics. And the three most important metrics of any health insurance are how does it stand up against the standards of increased access to medical care, improved quality of medical care, and lowering the cost of medical care. And I contend the key to all three of those is access to affordable health insurance. But let's take a look at how affordable health insurance gives us access to quality health care. The purpose of any insurance is to purchase protection before the onset of a problem. For example, you can't buy hurricane insurance when a named storm is headed your way. An imminent potential claim from a known pre-existing condition generally precludes the purchase of insurance coverage for that risk. You either have to delay it, put it off, or you can't get insurance because of a pre-existing condition. This is a debate that we're having in this country that's really already resolved. We are going to cover pre-existing conditions. We are going to provide access to care and access to insurance regardless of whether you have pre-existing conditions or not. So that issue is already solved, but what's not solved is how do we get there? How do we allow for pre-existing conditions without destroying all the necessary balances, especially in a free market system? So when it comes to health insurance, buying health insurance to gain access to health care is a little bit different than the hurricane insurance example I just gave. Because pre-existing conditions are prevalent in most of us. Some individuals are born with a congenital pre-existing condition. Over time, many will suffer from accidents and illnesses. Others will acquire chronic conditions. Still others must deal with the normal disabilities of aging. So the idea of pre-existing conditions in other aspects of insurance really don't apply in the same way to health insurance. Now, before Obamacare, health insurance company used an analysis of medical records and policy application information to profile individuals or groups seeking health coverage. Insurers wanted to determine the extent of any pre-existing sickness or illness. 
This is called risk selection. Before Obamacare, most states allowed health insurers to unilaterally deny individual applicants or groups trying to access or purchase health insurance coverage. Many insurers abuse this risk selection power by cherry-picking only very healthy consumers. Now, this was especially evident when you wanted to buy individual health insurance, but it was also true to some degree in group insurance. These two frequent underwriting abuses increase the number of uninsureds because people couldn't get insurance. They didn't have the power to balance out that unilateral power of insurance companies. Individuals were especially disadvantaged if they tried to leave a job where they had employer-sponsored coverage. They really didn't have many options. Buying an individual policy was difficult as insurers limited access by using the most extreme underwriting risk selection process. Now, sure, when you leave an employer, you have something called COBRA that allows you to continue your employer coverage, but without any employer subsidy and an additional 2% cost on top of that. So since employer coverage is usually fairly comprehensive, that cost of insurance, which you may not need all of those things your employer put in, got to be very expensive. So in general, limiting access to health insurance means limiting access to medical care. Personalized health insurance empowers consumers and assures access to affordable health insurance for all Americans. A pre-Obamacare study by the American Health Insurance Plans, or AHIP, showed that 88 to 89 percent of health insurance applications that went through the medical underwriting process resulted in an offer of coverage. That was mutually agree upon offer of coverage. A significant number of applications for individual health insurance never even made it to the medical underwriting process. Some applications received were either not processed, for example, they lack citizenship, or denied for non-medical reasons such as failure to provide additional information requested. Sure, acceptance rates varied by age. Insurers accepted 95% for people under age 18 because they're generally healthy. But as we aged, that underwriting process eliminated more and more people because only 71% of the people aged 60 to 64 were accepted. Older folks were just more likely to be rejected for pre-existing conditions. But over all ages, only about 2 or 3% were, re- were deemed truly uninsurable. So between that 12% that weren't getting insurance and the underlying portion of that, the 2 or 3% that were truly uninsurable, it's about 12% of the applications that were rejected by insurers for medical reasons. It is these critical 12% that are empowered under a personalized health insurance program to access affordable coverage they need and to cover pre-existing conditions. These critical 12% do not come from any one set of employer plans or from any particular sector of society. They can be rich, they can be poor, they can be middle class, but many of them are working for small businesses. They work multiple jobs, many of them part-time, or they're self-employed. This is where the uninsured reside, in this 12%. This is where the need for health reform to make insurance affordable resides, in this critical 12%. Now, a program to address the 12% will carry over and have benefits to the rest of the 88%. But in the past, the 12% were kind of just discarded. That's too many people in our society that are discarded. And we can turn that around and actually, by doing the right things for them, help everybody else along the way. Because most of these 12% were really hardworking individuals and families seeking to provide for themselves and to protect their families protect their finances against bankruptcy should they have a big medical expense. So personalized health insurance addresses these issues so that no one now covered is dropped from coverage and no new persons are left without access to purchase insurance that covers pre-existing conditions. 
So the key test of access to care, access to medical care, personalized health insurance passes with flying colors. The secret here is that access to affordable health insurance provides access to health care. That's the first test. This is simple and an obvious concept and is frequently missing in most health insurance reform proposals. Now, let's discuss why that might be that they're missing in most health care reform proposals. Because instead of stratifying the risks, stratifying the population so that we can identify the needs and help individuals identify their own needs for health insurance and the health care that they need, we try to throw everybody into a single pot. A one-size-fits-all. And that's typically the way government works. They don't identify individual needs. That's what a free market does. A free market allows you, allows me, to make the personal choices that are deemed necessary and appropriate for our needs. We know our needs more than some government bureaucrat or some insurance company lobbyist that wants to force a certain coverage on us. Just think about those commercials you see on TV for auto insurance. I think it's Liberty Life. Buy only what you need. Now, why can we do that in auto insurance, but we can't do that in healthcare? And of course, the answer is healthcare has become politicized. The media has played up everybody who's uninsured and the problems are going bankrupt and doesn't give us a full picture of how the market could actually work. Yes, there are warts. There are open wounds in our system that need to be corrected. And that's what personalized health insurance is designed to do, to give us a broad picture Now, if you can imagine something different, if you can imagine some add-on to this, please let me know. I'm just trying to paint out a picture of what is possible. And personalized health insurance is a structure that gives us the basis for what is really possible in the marketplace. If only we can get this message out to politicians, to elected officials, to bureaucrats, to healthcare think tanks, to people who have influence in where this country is going, because otherwise we're going to wind up with a single-payer Medicare-for-all system, and that could come about sooner than you realize, depending upon the outcome of this next election. But the reality is we can get what we want, not what Washington wants to give us. Well, let's take a break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about the next step in measuring whether or not healthcare reform, personalized health insurance, really makes sense or not. Does it meet the second test that we'll talk about when we come right back? You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web, Web Radio. We're talking about healthcare insight, and in particular, we're talking about a structure called personalized health insurance. This next section, we want to talk about the quality of medical care. But we're relating everything to health insurance. So let me make this statement. The quality of medical care is only possible when options to access care is provided through affordable health insurance. So quality of care starts with quality health insurance. Personalized health insurance means easier access to quality care. Easier access to quality care means better treatments. And better treatments means better health. So the importance of quality medical care is that you're going to get better health as an outcome. Now, the Institute of Medicine concluded that health insurance is associated with better health outcomes for adults with the receipt of appropriate care across a range of preventive, chronic, and acute services. Adults without health insurance 
experienced greater declines in health status and die sooner than adults with continuous coverage and care. The ripple effects of being uninsured and having poor health are felt throughout society. We have 28 million uninsured even under the structure of Obamacare. But uninsured children have impaired development and poor school performance. Uninsured children are 70% more likely to go without care for common childhood conditions such as asthma, ear infections, and sore throats. Uninsured children are five times more likely to have unmet needs for medical care each year. So you can see the importance of health insurance to be able to get quality medical care. The uninsured are 33% less likely to get routine physical examinations and 25% less likely to visit a doctor for an illness. Uninsured women are 36% less likely to get a pap smear and 60% less likely to get a mammogram. It doesn't stop with children and women because uninsured men are 40% less likely to get a prostate examination. Uninsured adults have more absences from work, more unscheduled sick days, and greater rates of disability. A 2004 Kaiser Family Foundation study that societal costs of the uninsured total up to be more than $125 billion. And that was in 2004. It's probably double that today, or $250 billion. Personalized health insurance provides specialized treatment for those most in need and improved access to quality care for all. you got to remember that quality of care includes good mental health for individuals and small groups. A 2008 Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act required employers with over 50 employees to cover mental health the same as physical health. Employees and family members enrolled in small group plans need the same kind of integrated mental health benefits. One truism exists. If you're a small employer, and quite honestly, if you're a large employer, if an employer-sponsored plan does not include stress management, I guarantee you it is 100% certain that plan members will have their own stress management program. But as an employer, it's likely it will not be beneficial to your workers' health or productivity. Without a structured stress management program, the most common self-destructive stress reliefs are things like comfort food, smoking, alcohol, and drugs. Most employers are beginning to really understand the work effects of stress and depression. And this all relates to quality of medical care. Few employers fully grasp the debilitating impact on families from attention deficit disorders to post-traumatic stress disorder and other more complex mental health diagnoses. Let me sort of paint a visual picture for you on the cost of mental health conditions because this is absolutely critical to getting quality health care is to get quality mental health. Because without mental health, you have no real health. And many times mental health conditions like depression and stress are the underlying cause, comorbid costs at a minimum of other health care issues. So let's start off with this mental picture and paint a couple of areas relative to costs and then to the quality of care. Different types of mental health costs actually have a low direct cost, things like frustration, anxiety, low stress, and minor depression. Those can be treated with mental health experts, but there's a related physical condition to those mental health issues. Things like tobacco use, sleeplessness, colds and flus that occur more frequently, and 
blood pressure problems. What does that do for the corporate side? It increases errors, there's more presenteeism, and there's a loss of teaming from people who are frustrated or anxious. Let's move up to scale a little bit on mental health issues to see about the quality of medical care and how it's related. The next step up on mental health conditions are things like moderate stress, depression, anger, attention deficit disorder, and post-traumatic stress. Those things actually have a correlated physical condition. In many cases, when you find those mental health issues, you will find things like hypertension, muscular skeletal problems, digestive disorders, gastrointestinal problems. And what does that do for the corporation and your work effort? Well, there's more unscheduled absences, poor morale, relationship conflicts, and loss of productivity. Let's go to the next level of mental health issues. High stress, major depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, obsessive compulsive, panic disorder, anorexia, bulimia. You can see now we're getting much more complicated and some of the things that you and I may not even fully understand or appreciate unless we've had psychology or we're psychiatrists listening on this. So what are the physical issues that are related to or correlated to these mental health issues? Things like cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, asthma, back pain, alcoholism. Or what about the effect on your work site? Well, clearly from these issues, there's going to be low productivity. You'll find more divorces, turnover in your employee population, early retirement, more workers' comp claims, and more disabilities. Let's go to the final area, the highest cost and most complicated areas to deal with, or maybe things we haven't really dealt with in a mental health issue. We'll have violence and suicides and what's the physical aspects? Well, there's be more accidents, more burns. And what about the work situation for these mental health conditions? You'll have deaths. You'll have work violence. And you may, if there's access to your computer systems and your cyber technology areas, you can have disaster recovery problems. Your whole work can be shut down. So as you can see, you need to have good mental health to get good quality health care. And the costs, if you don't relate these things, are enormous. And personalized health care focuses to a large degree on these mental health issues because mental health issues are not character weaknesses. Like most physical illnesses, mental health is a disease and it is treatable. As the Mental Health of America axiom states, you cannot have health without mental health. So our test number two around quality is passed with an A plus because of the significant focus on mental health issues. And having good insurance gives you access to good mental health, which makes sure that you have good quality medical care all the way around. Because you cannot have access to quality care without access to affordable health insurance. And access to good health insurance means the unique needs of individuals, your unique needs, will provide access to personalized quality of care. Remember, quality of care goes beyond provider credentials and medical results. Quality of care encompasses things like timely medical advice, informed options, alternative treatments, good bedside manners, and many more. It's important that our medical providers actually understand that it's not just a clinical delivery of care. People will respond very differently to the bedside manner, to being able to trust and understand and be compliant and adherent to the medical services that are offered up, taking the right medication, following the doctor's orders. If there's not a good trusting relationship between the patient and the provider, based upon the provider's developing relationship with that patient, yes, there's a normal human trait of wanting to trust the provider we go to, but these days we're challenging more and more of our institutions 
of those people who are supposed to take care of us. So I think that at the end of the day, what we're really going to find is that quality of medical care as the second test in any kind of reform system is really going to have a lot more aspects to it than many would normally think of. That quality of medical care is not just getting care that gets you better or gets you recovered. A quality of care can have a lot of different dimensions. How you're treated. Can you get in and see the doctor that you need rapidly? Do you get good early prevention, early intervention? Are you given the right information so that you can take care of yourself? Are you given the right kind of education around the condition or disease or the illness that you have so that you can be sure that you know and understand why the doctor is recommending what he recommends or she? So there's a lot of aspects to quality of care, but you cannot get quality of care unless it is personalized. And that's why we talk about personalized health insurance so that you can get personalized health care. That's the way you get to real, true quality, a good definition of quality. Well, we've reached the end of another segment. Let's take a commercial break, and we'll be right back on America's Web Radio, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. I'm Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. For this segment of the program, we want to talk about the third area to measure any kind of health reform against, the third metric. And that's, in many ways, the most important, that is the cost of care. We want to talk about affordability of insurance and the affordability of medical care. Well, the cost of care can be lowered with segmentation by health status or health risks. There are group impacts and there are personal impacts to costs. I'll explain that in a minute. Group and personal changes in behaviors can lower the use of medical services, thus lowering the cost of care, reducing premiums, and offsetting out-of-pocket costs. The real problem with the cost of medical care is that 90% of doctors and hospitals have no idea what their costs of care are. Now, can you imagine any kind of a retail business, any kind of a product where the owners of that product, the sellers of that product, don't know what the underlying costs are to make that product? That's what's happening in healthcare. So, Without knowing what their costs are, how does this medical system work? Well, hospitals use something they call a charge master as a basis for negotiating with private insurers. Charge master schedules are not related to actual procedural costs. They are essentially made-up fees. Government insurance programs pay hospitals based on another artificial schedule, called a DRG. DRG stands for Diagnostic Related Group. Now, on the doctor's side, they classify diseases based on something called an ICD-10. That stands for International Classification of Diseases. They then charge fees based on something called a CPT code, where CPT stands for Current Procedural Technology or Terminology. The American Medical Association creates this proprietary fee schedule. The public has no input. Competition is irrelevant. And free market forces are ignored. The CPT codes form the basis of federal Medicare payments to doctors. They also form the basis of negotiated amounts paid to doctors for private insurance. Maybe now you can see how the medical charges are rigged against insider with insider terminology and self-dealing of amounts that they can charge. They make up 
what charges are. There's no reality to it. But it's a system that's developed over many years. Did you know, for example, that doctors cannot charge you less than Medicare? That's because the government has contracts that require any doctor accepting Medicare to abide by a clause referred to as most favored nation. So under federal law, doctors cannot accept less than Medicare fees from your private insurance company. It's an insider's game using fancy formulas and mathematics to price fix and rip off the American consumers. In most cases, third-party payments, that is, payments from insurers, government, or employers, distort normal consumer price influences. They minimize pricing competition and eliminate normal market pressures for transparency. It's an amazing system that's developed as a self-dealing system for many years. And it's hard to change because there are a lot of vested interests, a lot of lobbyists, a lot of money to protect. A crazy system that costs you and me when we want to go to the doctor. That costs you and me when those doctor costs, those hospital costs, drive up our insurance costs. So if you want to get affordable health insurance, you got to have something that breaks the back of this price fixing against you by government and insurance companies. So what's the solution? Well, given the forces working against you, you still need to lower insurance premiums. So how can you influence insurance premiums? Well, there's a way that you can do it before you get a chance to actually break the back legislatively of this game that they play against you. Keep in mind that insurance premiums are made up of medical procedure costs, even though those are artificial, times a utilization factor. What is utilization? Utilization is the number of times a medical procedure is used. Consumers may not be able to directly set or competitively influence the cost of medical services, but consumers can affect the number of times the service is used. There are group impacts and personal impacts on premiums through limited patient utilization of services. Let me try to describe that a little bit more as we go along here. Group impacts and personal impacts. Well, the group impacts start by segmenting insured lives into like-minded risk classifications. The lower utilization groups will benefit naturally with lower premiums. Keep in mind, lower medical costs through lower utilization means lower insurance premiums. This, of course, is a result of segmenting similar risks and comparable levels of personal responsibility and self-care. Remember, higher risk groups under personalized health insurance will get government subsidies that will lower their premiums. That's what I call the group benefit, the group impact. If you're part of a group and you have the same sort of basic principles of life and taking care of yourself and utilizing only the services that you need, if you're in that kind of a group, that kind of a risk pool, you're going to have lower premiums, and you should. Now, as far as lowering personal utilization, that can also lower premiums or out-of-pocket costs that you would otherwise pay deductibles and coinsurance. For example... If you have a health savings account, an HSA, you can get rewards for personal actions added to your HSA account. Those dollars based on personal actions and compliance can lower premiums and offset plan cost sharing, the deductibles, co-pays, and co-insurance. You get rewards and incentives into your health savings account. So lower premiums are the real reason personalized health insurance uses risk segmentation as the basis of insurance. You have a right to purchase insurance associated with good or bad risks. Why? Because you should be able to share in the savings created by the pool's lower utilization of services. Here's how pooling poor risks in impaired health support plans will lower the cost for everyone. As I've explained before, personalized health insurance places individual and small group uninsurables 
into an impaired health support group of plans. That means the remaining insurers are a pool of better risk with lower costs. Based upon research at the Employee Benefit Research Institute, the EBRI, 1% of group plan members generate 20% of total health care costs. It is this population that would medically benefit the most from the impaired health support plans and the subsidies that would go along with it. But moving this population to an impaired health support coverage will lower individual policy and small group contracts by a similar amount at least 10 to 20%. Can you imagine a program that would lower your cost 10 to 20%? You'd have more small businesses signing up to get insurance for their employees because it would now be affordable, not artificially with government supports, but because we have segmented people out to give them the best help and support. And the purpose of that separation is not just to subsidize them, but to give them the proper information and support services to stabilize their situation and to improve their health. So those wanting lower premiums on plans with higher deductibles with savings to fund preventive care should have those options. Some consumers desire only a short-term catastrophic coverage. So everyone should be allowed the choice of any lower premium plan that they want. That is how we're going to get lower health insurance costs, more affordable health insurance for everyone by segmenting risks into at least insurable and uninsurable, and maybe some subcategories after that that would help people get the right information. If they've got a chronic condition, asthma, diabetes, congestive heart failure, they need more information. They need different information than the person who is basically young and healthy where they need information about early intervention, wellness, well-being, maybe some mental health support as they're going through the life traumas of graduating from college and getting into a job, being financially finding a job that will be financially supporting to their family, starting a family, worrying about houses and mortgages and children. Those things can be difficult for young people. They need help and support in that way. And older folks need help and support for the medical issues that they face. Very different from young people. If you're in the middle of your years, you might have different problems there. Or if you have a congenital disease that you've been taking care of all these years, different medications, you need to understand how that is helping you and how you might be able to improve, and what new medications are coming on board that might be even more helpful to you. There are a lot of things that can be done if, in fact, we follow this idea of personalized health insurance and segmenting of risks so that we can get the right information to the right people at the right time to take care of their own health and health care needs. And by doing that, we can affect their utilization of services, and we can attack those cost of services that are so artificial and so ingrained in our system, it's going to be difficult to weed that out. But it can be done on the price side, but we can start with the utilization side. We can start by doing the right things to get rewards and incentives into an HSA account, which gives us the power to spend those dollars the way we want to spend those dollars. Health savings account empowers individuals. It changes the balance. It is a good start, but is not the end. But it is one of the major tools we have today to begin to make that change. It may require federal legislation in order to do some of the other things that I've suggested. But when we're in the middle of a debate about health care reform, these ideas need to be on the table. Because you can imagine how different your life would be, how different your family's life could be if you had the insurance that you wanted and you need and that you were really considered and treated as a true consumer. Well, let's take another break. We'll come back and wrap up this week's session of Healthcare Insight. 
We'll be right back. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to our final session this week on America's Web Radio, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. We've been continuing to talk about and describe what you can do as a consumer, as a patient, to lower your cost of health insurance so that you can get the best health care you need at the time you need it. We've been talking about a system, a future system that could be developed called personalized health insurance. We've talked about the three cornerstones of cost, quality, and access to care. Now that we've gone through the details of that, and I've asked you to think about how you could imagine it being even better as we've gone through these steps. Let's talk about how in the world you finance health insurance, since that is the financing vehicle to get the health care that you want. How do you finance health care? Most of you say, well, you pay premiums. No, that's not the only way you actually can finance health insurance. There are multiple options that are available. So let's recognize that health insurance can be financed through at least three mechanisms. The first is the obvious one, insurance premiums. Or at least if you're a large employer or an employer who's subsidizing the premiums, it'd be your employee or family contribution to the overall premiums and costs of the plan. So that's first. Second is savings. Now there's different ways you can do savings. You can just put money in your bank account. And if it accumulates to when you need it, that would be taxable accumulation. You'd have tax on the interest that you would gain. But there's non-taxable ways that you can save as well. Things that are really set up to benefit the consumer. There's non-taxable health savings accounts, or HSAs. HSAs are an enormously popular and valuable vehicle because the money that you put into an HSA, a health savings account, is tax deductible when you put it in. So you don't pay your normal state or federal income taxes on those dollars. Once you put them into the savings account, they accumulate tax-free, so you don't pay taxes on the increase in the value, whether it's from interest or you invest it in stocks and you get capital gains, appreciation, whatever you're getting on it, that's non-taxable. And when you take it out for health care expenses, it's not taxable then. So it's what's considered to be a triple tax advantage. You can put monies into an HSA for savings, and your employer can Put additional dollars into that HSA. Now, there's another vehicle that some people think sounds like an HSA, but it's called an HRA, a health reimbursement arrangement. And they're great vehicles to create sort of an accumulated account. It's not real dollars. It's sort of the promises of your employer or the promises of an insurance company to grant you HRA dollars, you can't put those dollars into a bank account. They're sort of kept for you in what's considered sometimes and called a notional account. It's sort of a ledger that just says, okay, you have these many dollars to spend. And when you need them, they're there. Now, the negative part of HRAs is that you can't put dollars in as, a, as the consumer, as the policyholder. Only an employer or an insurance company basically can grant HRA dollars. But that's the second way you can finance health insurance, by accumulating dollars through a savings vehicle, taxable or non-taxable. And there's a third way that most people don't even know about or think about, but it's just as important as the first two. It's what I will refer to as incentives and rewards. It's dollars that not just are established when you buy a policy or when you go through your 
annual renewal, you sit down with on your employer plan options, and you start January 1st usually or sometimes July 1st, it's not when you start the plan. It's what happens during the year that your plan or your insurance company provides incentives and rewards to you that can be added to your account, into your savings. If it's an HSA eligible plan, you can have dollars put into the HSA account that would then be your dollars to use whenever you wanted. If it's completion of certain tasks that the employer or the insurance company believes will benefit your own health, you can get a reward for doing that whether that's having your first um, telemedicine meeting. Maybe it's having your first home health meeting. Maybe it's having a corporate run. Maybe it's doing prenatal care. There's all sorts of activities going on that can create additional dollars to flow in to help finance your health insurance and or the cost-sharing features of deductibles and co-insurance and co-pays that are part of your insurance plan. Now, health reforms have not taken into account the benefit of all three approaches, but personalized health insurance does. Personalized health insurance recognizes that healthcare can be financed through at least these three mechanisms. Obamacare mainly focuses on premiums to finance health insurance. Personalized health insurance recognizes that if unleashed, from Obamacare restrictions, the private market will develop products and services with premiums, savings, and incentives. Now, let me just take a second to describe the difference between incentives and rewards. They're oftentimes used interchangeably. But technically, incentives are things that are given to you up front to encourage you to take some action. Rewards are those dollars given to you after you have accomplished something to recognize that you have successfully completed the task. But typically, the media uses them interchangeably and just calls them incentives. These innovations that would be unleashed if we could change some of the laws and regulations at the state level and the federal level, these innovations would provide consumers with lower-cost financing options that meet consumer needs. Some of these things, like savings, could be expanded. Why do you have to have an HSA-eligible plan to get an HSA account? HSAs are so valuable to consumers and to patients, they ought to be available on any plan design. HRAs are. HRAs can be attached to any plan design. We need to have some change and discussion with politicians around the value of savings that would put more power into the consumer's hands so that when they want something, they have some dollars set aside on a tax-advantaged basis, hopefully, to make those purchases. Even if the insurance company does not cover it under their insurance policy, or it's not an eligible expense based upon what some insurance bureaucrat decides is an eligible expense. So personalized health insurance expands the ability for insurers to offer multiple plan designs that provide financial incentives to plan members who are compliant with healthy initiatives. So federal law clearly should be changed to allow tax-advantaged HSAs on any plan design. Account-based plans put control in the hands of consumers. Account-based plans put the power in the hands of consumers. That is such an important concept. Account-based plans support financial rewards and incentives for specific healthy behavioral changes. Those are not not uniform across all insurance companies. They may have different incentive rewards for behavioral changes, but that's okay. That's the experiment that we're currently undergoing. What is it that People need to change behaviors that will actually create a lower utilization of healthcare services. So consumers willing to make good health and healthcare choices should be able to share in the savings generated. Rewards and incentives should be provided under individual and small group plans that can be used to offset deductibles and coinsurance. 
outdated state rebate laws prevent insurers, in many cases, from providing incentives to small employer fully insured groups that are allowed in large employer self-insured plans. Remember, they're under different laws, ERISA laws for large employers. They can do more things. They have more flexibility. So incentives and rewards have already proven to lower costs and lower utilization. They improve health, reduce unneeded use of medical care services, and improve quality. We have to figure out a way to expand it. Incentives can be offered for things like wellness, condition management, disease management, and health improvement programs. Incentives can include merchandise, gift cards, debit cards, premium discounts, HSA contributions, co-payment reductions, deductible deductions, co-insurance reductions, and lower employee contributions. There's all sorts of creative possibilities if we just open up the laws and regulations to allow that. Personal incentives and rewards can lower the cost of insurance by 20% or more. ERISA allows individual incentives based on health status for self-funded plans. The Federal Department of Labor allows up to 20 to 30% of premiums for health status and unlimited incentives for participation rewards. Hear that again, unlimited incentives for participation rewards. These are potential personal savings that would be in addition to the potential group pool savings we mentioned earlier if we allowed stratification of people by their risk pool. So the personal savings can be enormous. Large employer groups have successfully adopted many of these incentives. However, Obamacare's single risk pool mandate and existing state laws for individual health policies and small group plans discourage implementation of these effective cost-saving programs. So there you have it. There's a path to affordable health insurance. There's a path through affordable health insurance to quality health care, to lower cost health care, to access to health care. All that's possible if we make these changes, if we open up the marketplace, the private marketplace, the free marketplace, the low hassle marketplace, so that we can get the things that we've been imagining are out there that can be out there in a real way to save us the dollars we want to cover our health care needs when we need them. There's no reason that a small employer would want to say, I can't afford health insurance for my employees. The benefits to having healthy employees, productive employees is so great. There's no reason except for cost. And now we have a path to lower the cost of health insurance by recognizing that there are at least three, if not more, ways to finance health insurance. Every employer should want to do that. Every employee should want to do that. Every American should want to do this. I hope you've gotten the message here today. I look forward to continuing this discussion on personalized health insurance in the following weeks. Come back and join us. This is Ron Bachman signing off for Healthcare Insight. You've been on American America's Web Radio. See you next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.